Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. Just like last month, we're bringing you two deep dives this month. That's right. So we covered The Witches of Eastwick earlier this month, and now we're going to deep dive into The Ghost and The Darkness. Thank you. I know. I mean, so apparently, <laughs> listeners, I've been living a lie since this movie was released because I have always, always called it The Ghost in the darkness like the ghost in the shell <laughs> and that's just not right that's wrong so, it's just yeah. wrong <laughs> that's appalling i mean and i you'd think that i would have discovered this earlier on because chris like sent me a message and said hey we should cover this movie and i'm like well let's do it now right i started looking it up i started making notes and i was writing the ghost in the darkness on everything and then today I tried to type that into Google and nothing was working for me and I couldn't figure it out. I just was like, oh my gosh, this is the wrong title of this movie. It didn't even say, did you mean the ghost and the darkness? <laughs> no, Google was nice enough to not point out my stupidity this time. Okay. So, but yeah, so uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that I've been corrected now and it actually makes a whole lot more sense. <laughs> The Ghost in the Darkness is a 1996 American historical adventure film directed by Stephen Hopkins and starring Val Kilmer and Michael Douglas. The story is a fictionalized account of the Savo Man-Eaters, two lions that attacked and killed workers in Savo, Kenya during the construction of the Uganda-Mombasa Railway in East Africa in 1898. The film features a musical score by Jerry Goldsmith, and the screenplay was written by William Goldman, based on the Man-Eaters or Savo, a book published in 1907 by Lieutenant Colonel John Henry Patterson, the man who actually hunted and killed both lions. Goldman first heard of the story while traveling through Africa in 1984, and later pitched the idea to Paramount in 1989 as a cross between Jaws and Lawrence of Arabia. He was commissioned to write the screenplay, which he delivered in 1990. My particular feeling is that they were evil, Goldman said of the lions. I believe that for nine months, evil popped out of the ground at Savo. But before we get too deep into the jungle, this is the Ghost of the Darkness. Oh my god. Holy. Lions don't do this. Lions never had a lair like this. They're doing it for the pleasure. They are not lions. They are the ghost and the darkness. We're in a race, Colonel, and the prize is the continent of Africa. We are building the most expensive and daring railroad in history for the glorious purpose of saving Africa from the Africans and, of course, to end slavery. How many do you think they've killed? Hundred. Maybe more. Do we wish the world to think that the builders of the British Empire are afraid because of a few minor difficulties with the local wildlife? Are you sure this was a lion? I'm going to locate Remington. I assume you've heard of him. Well, ready! Now, do you see a problem with that? Actually, no. Let's go after him. Get him back! I am the devil. Yeah! Stay out of my way. 
rather cheerful fellow when you get to know you. <laughs> you don't enjoy killing, do you? Then why do it? Because I've got a gift. Shoot Michael Douglas. Val Kilmer. The Ghost and the Darkness. Now, can you control your fear? Can you? In 1898, Sir Robert Beaumont, the primary financier of a railroad project in Savo, Kenya, played by Tom Wilkinson, is furious because the project is running behind schedule. He seeks out the expertise of Lieutenant Colonel John Henry Patterson, a British military engineer, played by Val Kilmer, to get the project back on track. Patterson travels from England to Savo, telling his wife Helena that he'll complete the project and be back in London before the birth of their son. Upon arrival in Savo, Patterson meets British supervisor Angus Starling, Kenyan foreman Samuel, played by John Canney, and Dr. David Hawthorne, played by Bernard Hill. Dr. Hawthorne tells Patterson of a recent lion attack that has affected the project and struck fear into the hearts of the workers. That night, Patterson kills an approaching lion with one shot, earning the respect of the workers and bringing the project back on schedule. However, not long afterwards, Mahina, the construction foreman, is dragged from his tent in the middle of the night. His half-eaten body is found the next morning. Patterson then attempts a second nighttime lion hunt, but the following morning, another worker is found dead at the opposite end of the camp from Patterson's position. Patterson's only comfort now is the letters he receives from his wife. While the workers are gathering wood and building fire pits around the tents, a lion attacks the camp in the middle of the day, killing another worker. While Patterson, Starling, and Samuel are tracking it to one end of the camp, another lion leaps upon them from the roof of a nearby building, killing Starling with a slash to the throat and injuring Patterson's arm. Despite his efforts to kill them, both lions escape. Samuel, the Kenyan foreman, states that there has never been a pair of man-eaters before. Lions have always been solitary hunters. The workers, led by the Indian supervisor Abdullah, begin to turn on Patterson, and work on the bridge comes to a halt. Patterson requests soldiers from England to protect the workers, but is denied. During a visit to the camp, Sir Beaumont tells Patterson that he will ruin his reputation if the bridge is not finished on time, and that he'll contact the famous hunter Charles Remington to help, because Patterson has so far been unable to kill the lions, or as he states it, a minor issue with the local wildlife. That man's such a fucking prick. I mean, I <laughs> God. Remington, played by Michael Douglas, arrives with skilled Maasai warriors to help hunt and kill the lions. They dub the lions the ghost and the darkness because of their notorious methods of attack. The initial attempt fails when Patterson's borrowed gun misfires. The warriors decide to leave, but Remington stays behind. After finding lion prints by the camp hospital, Remington orders the construction of a new hospital for the sick and injured workers to move to, and tempts the lions to the now-abandoned hospital with animal parts and blood. When the lions seemingly fall for the trap, Remington and Patterson shoot at them, but the lions circle back and attack the new hospital, killing many patients as well as Dr. Hawthorne. This devastating attack causes Abdullah and the construction workers to leave, and only Patterson, Remington, and Samuel remain behind. 
Patterson and Remington locate the animal's lair, discovering the bones of dozens of the lion's victims, leading Remington to the realization that the lions are killing many of their victims for pleasure, something he has never seen or heard of before. That night, Remington finally kills one of the lions by using Patterson and a baboon as bait. Afterwards, Remington, Patterson, and Samuel spend the evening drinking and celebrating. In his sleep, Patterson dreams that his wife and newborn child have arrived in Savo only to watch helplessly as the remaining lion leaps from the brush and kills them. Awakened by the shock of his nightmare, he finds that the remaining lion has slaughtered Remington as he and Samuel slept. After the two men cremate Remington, they burn the tall grass surrounding the camp, driving the surviving lion toward the camp in order to ambush him. The lion attacks them on the partially constructed bridge, and after a harrowing fight, Patterson finally kills it. With both lions finally killed, Abdullah and the construction workers return, and the bridge is completed on time. Patterson reunites with his wife and meets his newborn son for the first time. The end. In end. <laughs> end. The, the ghost, ghost and in the, end. the darkness. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we got a lot of things to talk about for this movie, but uh, first, The Ghost and the Darkness was filmed on location at the Songham Velo Game Reserve in South Africa. The shoot proved to be rather difficult. After filming, director Stephen Hopkins said of the shoot, we had snake bites, scorpion bites, tick bite fever, people getting hit by lightning, floods, torrential <laughs> rains and lightning storms, hippos chasing people through the water, cars getting swept into the water, and several deaths of crew members, including two drownings. Jesus. I know. Val came to set under the worst conditions imaginable. He was completely exhausted from doing The Island of Dr. Moreau. He was dealing with unfavorable publicity from that set. He was going through a divorce. He had barely had time to get his teeth into this role before we started. And he's in nearly every scene in the movie. But I worked him six or seven days a week for four months under really adverse conditions, and he really came through. He had a passion for this film. I've heard that because there's like nightmare uh, stories from the island of Dr. Moreau, right? And that's with... Um, oh, Marlon Brando? Yeah. Marlon I, Brando is like notoriously bad. You know, I have to completely have like taken that movie out of my mind. You know what I mean? It's yeah. not good. No, it's not. And and even he was like, Val Kilmer's a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> and yet he immediately goes to this shoot and he's going through all that stuff and apparently he was like a dream to work with so i don't know maybe he like learned you know but um well i mean yeah because he's i mean at the time val kilmer to me hadn't been in all that many movies what like top gun and tombstone even came later didn't it no i don't think so well, yeah, he was a he was a household name at this point. I mean, he had been. I think he got famous in all of these. I don't think maybe Batman was maybe a little. Oh, bit, yeah, but all Batman. of these were like in the middle of this whole thing, and I think Tombstone came out earlier, like nineteen ninety two or something, or nineteen ninety three. Yeah, I think you may be right because Batman yeah. definitely came out before Ghost in the Darkness because so. that basically launched his his career. Mm-hmm. You know, he and, had a career before that, but it launched him into this massive stardom because he did so well in Tombstone. And God help me, I love Batman Forever. So, I mean, <laughs> I think it's good. I haven't seen that movie in years. 
it's a fun ride okay so yeah uh apparently you know he was well liked on the set because he you, you know he had always you know loved africa i guess and he'd wanted to to do a movie there you know and he of course he had just come off this nightmare set with his gigantic ego and marlon brando and of course marlon brando hated val kilmer and the director hated val kilmer and everything was kind of going to shit and so i guess the when they started this movie all was just like ready to have a good time so <laughs> he did some work <laughs> But I mean, after, I mean, so that entire quote, though, if you're shooting on location in Africa, you have to expect some of these things. Snake bites, scorpion bites, hippos, whatever. I mean, like, it's yeah, just, but that's a lot like lightning and drownings and snake bites and tick bites and, you know, being chased by the wildlife and everything else. But it's almost like a cursed movie, maybe. Yeah. I don't know, right. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, the, the director said it was just the, the nightmare of his career. But the movie was released on October 11th, 1996, alongside The Long Kiss Goodnight. I love that movie. I haven't seen it. And the, what? I know. I know. Uh, Ghost in the Darkness debuted at number one, making more than $10 million in its first weekend. Ultimately, it would grow $75 million against a budget of $55 million. So who knows, depending on the marketing that they did, if they made any money. Uh, I'm sure it's made money in a lot of the you know distribution since then. I mean, I would call any movie that grosses $75 million to the box office a hit. You know, I mean, I mean, against that kind of a budget, for sure. So, you know, I can't even imagine making this movie, like, let alone all those problems, but I, I just remember in like half of these scenes, there's hundreds of extras. Yeah. Like what a nightmare. <laughs> what a nightmare the shoot must have been. And they're all supposed to be doing stuff and constructing things. And man, there really is a lot going on in the background besides like the Serengeti, you know? And then you've got yeah. trained fucking lions that you're trying to pull around the set with all these extras and everything else. I don't know what he was thinking. Was he thinking it was going to be like a like a sale? You know, like oh, this is going to be so easy. I don't good. think anyone thought it was going to be easy, but I'm sure they didn't expect you know all of the trouble that they got outside of that. Oof. So the Ghost in the Darkness has a 51% rating on Rotten Tomatoes with a consensus that states the Ghost in the Darkness hits its target as a suspenseful adventure, but it falls into a trap of its own making whenever it reaches for supernatural profundity. The audience score is much higher, however, at 75%. I wonder what they mean by um, supernatural profundity, trying to like say that the the lions, just like the, the, the locals saying that the lions were supernatural. It's, it never tried to sell the audience on that. No, but I mean, there, there was a lot of talk of like superstition and things like that. And, and like, I, I never thought that those lions had, were anything more than lions, you know, but yeah. So I, that consensus kind of baffles me a little bit, but hey. Roger Ebert said the film was so awful that it lacked the usual charm of being so bad it's funny, adding it was an African adventure that makes the Tarzan movies look subtle and realistic. <laughs> That's wow. pretty scathing. Conversely, David Ellis listed this film at number eight on his top 10 animal horror movies countdown. I can mm. see that. It won an Academy Award for Best Sound Editing, and also Val Kilmer was nominated for the Razzie Award for Worst Supporting Actor. Yeah, I think, well, I have things to say about that, so I'm sure that'll come up later on in the conversation. Yeah. So so let's talk about that reception a little bit. I, I, I think this movie came out at like a weird time, and they marketed it, I th- feel like, as like a historical drama like an adventure film, and I guess it kind of is. Obviously, this is kind of another genre-bending uh, movie. Right. It's, uh, you know, at parts it's very horror film, at other parts it's not, you know, and like any movie, it's there's a lot of gray area, but I'm not sure they knew how to market this. And it also came out at a weird time because it was contrasted with the English patient, 
you know, which is another historical drama, which won the best picture that year. And of course, they didn't try and sell it as based on a true story, especially given some of the happenings that beggar belief in the film. I mean, as you saw from Roger Ebert's review saying all of it's unbelievable, Tarzan's more believable. I mean, I think a lot of it does boil down to marketing because I was unsure whether or not I had seen this movie, right? Chris and I had talked about it. I'm like, I can't remember if I've seen it or not. I'm going to go with probably not. And as I was watching it for the podcast, I can definitely say... I have never seen this movie at all. I mean, it was released at a time when I was going to the theater regularly to see whatever was playing, right? I mean, in 1996, I was 17 years old, driving around town, just going to the movies. And I mean, I think I probably saw Jerry Maguire like 10 times in the theater, which is probably why I didn't see Ghost in the Darkness. <laughs> but I mean, so I, it, it was lost on me. And I know that people liked it because I worked at a video store at the time and it was rented a lot. Yeah. My parents love this movie. My father, especially when I told him we were doing it for the podcast, he was super excited. He's like, oh, I love that movie. I just love it. And I'm like, my God, how did I miss it? You know? <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't think it's it's very well known, actually. Yeah, I don't think that a lot of people have seen this movie. And that's kind of sad because it's not it's not terrible. I think Roger Ebert sort of missed the bar on his review. So, yeah, um, I think it's uh, underrated. I don't think they sold it right. And even though there's dialogue in the film talking about like this or that actually happened, this or that, you know, is is part of like the legacy of this as far as like what the locals said was supernatural or whatever. So we'll be getting to a little bit to the actual history of, of what, you know, was supposed to happen um, that this is based off of a little bit later. But let's start, start talking a little bit about the, the characters. Yeah. So let's start with Val Kilmer because unlike the, so the Razzies, how do they call him a supporting actor in this movie? I, He's in every fucking scene. He's the main character of the movie. Michael Douglas got top billing, even though he doesn't appear until halfway through the movie. Halfway through the movie. (laughs) And, I mean, like, if you're going to compare the two actors in this movie, I don't think that Val Kilmer should have been the one getting the Razzie. Right? No, he started off in the beginning kind of bad, in my opinion. And it's like, this is a guy that can do any accent in the world. And what the fuck is this Irish accent he's supposed to be doing? Like, I don't understand. Oh, my God. That it's all over my notes. I was like, he's super handsome. But that accent, though, I'm like, well, he went on to do the saint and he can do like every accent there, like perfectly, you know, and he's well known to be like a, you know, a chameleon actor. But he just didn't do that here. And I wonder if that was like something that was he was directed to do, make it slight. Meanwhile, he's standing right next to a guy that's actually doing an Irish accent because he's Irish, you know? So I, I don't know. Well, and to me, I'm not saying that Val Kilmer's performance in this was top notch. No, right? but he got better and better as the movie went through, I think. Yes. And I mean, like, I, I think that his character was believable enough for me. Right. However, that accent, like it seemed to come and go whenever he pleased or whatever. And I was just like, okay, like if you just either try to do it and do it bad or just don't do it at all, which is what half the movie seemed to me. It seemed to me mostly he was just talking like an American saying I instead yeah. of yes, you know? Mm-hmm. But I mean, like, I don't think he was that bad in this movie. I kind of liked him in this movie. No, he was fine. He was I serviceable. Mean, he, he did a good job presenting himself as a patriot but also someone who like loved other countries and to me had a very like 
noble sense of like, he was there to do a job that was part of colonialism, but I'm not even quite sure that he really subscribed to colonialism itself, right? Does that make sense? Maybe I'm just yeah. reading too much into that character. He, but. he viewed himself as someone who builds bridges, quite literally, right? Yes, exactly. And yeah. he really wanted to see the world, and it takes him all over the world to do his job. And he really loves that part of his job. You know, and his, you can tell that his wife, you know, understands that and they accept it, you know, and that's just part of their lives. I mean, let's face it, Val Kilmer is kind of an action star, right? I mean, that's what he was known for mostly, right? And, and this is kind of an action y movie and he, he does a good job in it. Like he's believable to me as a build, a bridge builder and a hunter at the same time, right? And if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, and he was known as a hunter, but not like an African game hunter, right? So he's not experienced at all in that type of hunting. And he got lucky that first night when he he killed the lion that had nothing to do with the actual lions that were the problem. You know, but how were they to know that? And that sort of leads into the the next like major character, which would be Remington, played by Michael Douglas, right? Yeah. So this role was originally offered to Sean Connery and Anthony Hopkins. Both of which, yeah, both of whom declined. Um, but executive producer Michael Douglas stepped into the last minute to play the part. Well, of course he did. Yeah. And then apparently uh, later on edited the film and edited whole sections out of the film in order to make his role larger, <laughs> seem larger, even though he doesn't Why, show really? up. Yeah. He's so fucking crazy in this movie. That was <laughs> that was the first note that I wrote when his character showed up. I was like, okay, so Michael Douglas is crazy. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. I sort of expect when a big game hunter shows up on the scene, I don't expect him to crack so much wise, you know? And so I was really, I think I was expecting a very serious character from him in this movie. And it's not what I got. And I was thrown for a a loop. I was just like, this is not what I was expecting at all. Well, he shows up like a deus ex machina, right? Abdullah and the workers are all about to turn on Patterson. And he just shows up with a gun to Abdullah's head and be like, you need to back off. I'm the devil, you know? And it's just like, (laughs) okay, what? I feel like Val Kilmer was taking like more and more and more responsibility and stress and control over the situation as he went on. And then there's like this massive tonal shift as soon as Michael Douglas, you know, shows up and Val Val Kilmer almost quite literally has like step back, you know, and let Michael Douglas do his thing for, you know, for at least, you know, 45 minutes or something. I I didn't dislike the character, right? It just wasn't what I was expecting for the most part. I don't know that we needed him because like Samuel and some of the other like African actors were kind of doing that role of of being the more knowledgeable people about, you know, the landscape and everything else. But it's like, this character was brought in for like a more like American perspective on things, you know, you know, you know, like the, the, the American bravado. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, they're trying to sell this movie to American audiences. It's being made by an American studio, by an American director and American writer. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I assume Wayne Goldman is American, but it I mean, <clears throat> it doesn't so, look, <clears throat> I mean, they, they have to have that. I mean, even in a period movie, if they're going to sell this as an adventure film or something, I mean, they're going to have to have that sort of American thing. I mean, from someone who hadn't seen the movie, I didn't know that he was an American character before watching it, right? Well, they didn't have to do that. I mean, they, they kind of Americanized uh, Val Kilmer's character so much that you yeah. almost didn't need that, you know? Yeah, he almost wasn't British at all. <laughs> he was obviously a, a good enough hunter even in the confines of this film and the writing of this film, he created that trap, um, which is not something we talked about in the synopsis, but 
that's that's a whole thing and we'll we'll talk about some specific scenes later but i do want to mention some of the other characters like dr david hawthorne played by bernard hill he, uh later the only other thing i really know him from was um lord of the rings he was like the the king of rohan theoden of course tom wilkinson as sir robert beaumont that he was fun of course he totally nails being a complete asshole prick douche yes i mean like he was such a good prick in this movie i was like that's that's amazing i really like the supporting characters in this movie and supporting acting so yeah those 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 two are great but i mean i think that once we get to like the the site right we're really given some really good characters (laughs) well yeah samuel is the the kenyan foreman was played by john canny and uh, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right, but he did a, a superb job and he was kind of just like the wise, you know, person the entire movie through always kept his cool and kind of, you know, supported and helped him, you know, get through all of it emotionally and quite literally physically too. He was the bridge <laughs> <laughs> in like human form. I mean, so like he spoke every single language that needed to be spoke on that job site. He went and like intermingled with everybody from like the higher ups to the people doing all the laboring work. And he he knew about lions. He knew about other cultures. He literally was the bridge in this movie. And it just really struck me as that like and by far he was my favorite character in this movie. Yeah, I, I really liked him, too. Uh, I loved seeing Ampuri as Abdullah. He's the Indian lead worker. Uh, he did a really good job and there's like it doesn't make anyone to, into like a straw man except for maybe Tom Wilkinson yeah. and like Ampuri uh, is the one that like leads the workers kind of revolt against Patterson but they have this understanding at the beginning and the end of the film that is actually quite nice to see um, one of my favorite smallest characters in this movie was Mahina played by Henry uh, Seal or Sully. I don't know how to pronounce it, but he was a construction foreman. He was the first one to die, but he is like almost the, the best pure horror moment where he's staring out at the waving grasses, you know, in the bush. And he kind of sees the hint of a lion watching them and you can see his reaction. And then he's the first one that's pulled from the tents and killed. And he's the first um, on-screen victim. And I do want to talk about like the, the screenplay for this movie later on and maybe it's construction a little bit but um yeah you're right that's like the first real like horror moment in this movie is when that character dies and i kind of saw it coming a little bit because they're having that conversation earlier and he's like well i've killed a lion too and you know my hands yeah yeah, how many shots and he's like with my hands and i was like (laughs) oh you'll be the first one to die hubris sir (laughs) but then like right after that you know like he and val kilmer have like sort of bonded over killing a lion and there's this scene where they're like building the bridge and it's really like rough manual labor and he's standing there with his shirt off and i was like my god that man is ripped i was just (laughs) like Jesus, of course you killed a lion with your bare hands. <laughs> no, I really I really appreciate a lot of the characters. It's a really good example of no small part yeah. in this film because there's a lot of side characters and they all do their job. They all pull their weight. They all are there for a reason. Mm-hmm. And you can tell that they all, you know, deeply care about their role. Uh, in either either in the film or in the story, you know. Yeah, I mean, I could I could see from the like the caliber of acting in this that they they did they they wanted to do a good job. I think that they really appreciated the role that was given to them, you know. And we we talk about things like no small parts or whatever. And I, I you know, William Goldman is really good about crafting a screenplay like that with mm-hmm. lots of different characters that are incredibly memorable, you know. And I mean, we 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 can't 
forget like characters in a Goldman screenplay, you know, especially things like the princess bride or like Butch Cassidy. Right. I mean, like those movies are great and he's, he's really, really good at creating a world filled with people. Right. He's just that kind of a writer. And I I appreciate the hell out of that. Now this is a, a really a boys movie, right? There's only one woman in this entire movie and it's Helena played by Emily Mortimer, which is her first ever role in a movie, I believe. Her first was it really? yeah she oh of God. course went on to do like um shutter island and she was in newsroom on hbo um and she's been in like hugo and mary poppins returns she's been in a lot yeah she's been lots and lots of british like tv and film yeah, yeah. but yeah this is i believe her first film role which is like interesting but anyway she has kind of a bit part she's the beginning and she's in a dream and then she's at the end but she does her you know she does well considering the the little that she's given She's supposed to be like an emotional anchor, I guess, you know, for our main character, Val Kilmer's Patterson. And really does provide like one of the most like shocking scenes. scenes, Yeah. Yeah. That we'll get to, I, you know, very soon. So why don't we talk about like some of these like key scenes and the ghost in the darkness. So I hadn't seen this film in like 15 years. Right. And so I was just struck kind of by the opening credits and the vibe that was going on. And they didn't start it with like the soundtrack um starts with like the Savo theme, which is like kind of playful and African and you know, and kind of out of Africa y. And uh which is beautiful score. I love the score for this film, I'm just gonna say. Jerry Goldsmith's 90s scores are all really, really good. It's like his best time. Uh this score in particular I'd completely forgotten about, but it it really has um it has like the scary like lion theme, it has an African theme, um, and it has like an interesting like horror and action motif in there too and it's really 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 worth a listen it's hard to get i couldn't find it on google play but it's on youtube but anyway so the opening credit starts with this horror kind of vibe right it's all dark and it has this like horror score to it and um i was kind of taken aback by that i was like i remember this being kind of horror adjacent but i didn't know they were really going to kind of sell that in a lot of different scenes starting with the opening credits so and i i mean i have to agree i think that uh the I was hoping for a lot of horror adjacency, right? Because I really didn't know what I was getting into. I knew that they were like man-eating lions, but I didn't know like how long the movie was going to progress until we got to see those lions. And we never really get to see those lions. But I mean, like... We do, though. Yeah, I mean, like later on, but they, they really frame the way those lions are depicted like sort of in the beginning right everything is like hidden and quiet and in the grass and they come from nowhere yeah and it does that that first scene um the lion in the grass where he's like staring out at the tall grasses out in the i guess the hills or whatever the prairie of africa i don't know what to call it they call it the serengeti the bush right (laughs) and uh, (laughs) the full bush (laughs) yes and you can kind of see a hint and the guy like knows that something's watching them and that's kind of the first kind of almost like roy shotter like jaws moment of the movie Mm -hmm. i feel like it's like i was like wow that they really went for it there and it's a subtle scene and i really liked it it is it's it's a very subtle scene when it comes to like horror and like making you feel terrified watching it because i was terrified watching that scene i was like oh my god and because we have spent the greater chunk of the first like 15 20 minutes of this movie like getting to know the characters and them traveling by train through africa with all this like chipper african drum music playing in the background and then like it's nighttime he's already killed a lion Mm -hmm. right and then all of a sudden you're like bam like the lion comes and drags that man through the grass and i was like what the fuck (laughs) 
Like, yeah. Oh my God. No, I do have to go back a little bit because he did kill that lion and everyone's like celebrating. And I was just like, wouldn't it be funny if it was just like in credits right here? <laughs> <laughs> no, the end. <laughs> the end. <laughs> the movie's called One Shot. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, you're right. Like it does set it up. You're like, oh, he didn't actually kill the right lion, you know, and it's not until later that you realize it's two lions. And that, they did that actually really well, you know, where like there's they're they're heading off towards like uh, where they, they hear a lion attacking and then there's another lion on the roof that like jumps, literally jumps down on them yes. and kills one of them, slashing the throat of a actually really good character too. And that, yeah, I mean, I, I did like that character quite a bit and um, I did, I was sad when he was dead because they sort of like discovered the body after the fact, right? During that whole, that, that scene where the lions are attacking them and it was... <laughs> It was good. It was well, like it was a well-directed moment. Right. Cause yeah. I didn't even notice that Val Kilmer had gotten injured. It happened so yeah. quickly mm-hmm. and so fast. And I really enjoy movies, especially horror movies when you, you can't really see everything of what's coming after you. Right. Some of it's very secret and that's, that's what's really scary. Right. Well, they definitely did it in like jump cuts and to make it a little more visceral and it kind of did put you in the moment because it's like if you you just see the line on the roof, next thing you know, it's pouncing on you and then it's like running off. Mm-hmm. And then you see the aftermath. And I was like, this is probably as close to the, you know, like an actual event of this happening, like on camera that you could get, you know, in like a, a storytelling kind of way on film. And it was well, super effective. Yeah. I mean. Because they really ramped up those lion skills until we get to Remington showing up, you know, in the movie. Yeah. And his first big thing, I would say, you know, is he's trying to do well, I, I guess his first big thing is the hunt with his like helpers, the Maasai warriors. Right. Which they kind of fuck up because of the whole gun not going off. Um you know, and I guess the warriors are like, no, we're like one time only, so we're all going to leave. That didn't really make sense to me, <laughs> all those warriors leaving, but... Yeah, they like took the time to come with him all the way, and then like Valkyrie has that one little fuck up, and they're like, oh, this isn't what we signed up for. These lions are not like real lions, you know, so we're going to peace out. <laughs> yeah. So maybe that's they, the smartest yeah. thing to do. I mean, Maybe. I don't know. But we didn't get to really see them in their, you know in their glory of actually like making a kill, which I would have loved to see, but you know, whatever. Uh, then we get the hospital massacre, which I thought was really well done because he sees the paw prints outside of the hospital. He's like, uh, no, they're sitting ducks. So he moves them all smartly. Mm-hmm. And so they like, they just drench this fucking building in buckets of blood and like all these parts and flesh parts of animals to really double down and get the lions to get there so they can shoot them from inside. Right. And the lions do come. But as soon as they start shooting, the lions double back and go to the new hospital and just fucking massacre people. Yeah. And that is like, this is the time that they really start to vilify these lions in this movie, like hardcore. Yeah. Because those lions are going at it with all those people. I mean, it's just like some sort of buffet for them. And I think the only other time that I thought that like they were really ramping up the, the villainous qualities of these animals was when they were inside that boxcar trap. Oh, the boxcar trap, right? Yeah, yeah. Because like the the, <laughs> and maybe that's part of like one of these mini scenes are are almost unbe- completely unbelievable. And then that boxcar scene, they're both like three people with guns are shooting at this thing that they did trap in the boxcar, and they don't manage to hit it once, and then it breaks the fuck out. <laughs> yeah, 
And it's just like they're shooting a gun. It's bouncing off of things. They're they're scared. It's obviously a really mean lion, you know. And so I mean it, that starts the the villainous aspects of the animals. And then once you get yeah. to that that hospital massacre, like these animals, quite frankly, are like the actual villains of this movie in a way that you know other animal horror movies have done. Things like yeah. Jaws, right, or things like Backcountry, and um, or like Day of the Animals. A whole number of things, right? But you know, they they sort of like cross the line into horror right then. I think right at that hospital massacre scene is when it, when it became a horror movie. Yeah, and it was those were there was definite horror scenes before that, but the whole movie shifts into that horror movie like complete mode at this point. The uh, the lion's den. We actually go into the cave and they see all of the skeletons. And maybe that's really why this is like the key scene for Michael Douglas's character, I think, is because they needed like an expert, a lion hunter, per se, I guess, to say this is not what lions do. And he was shocked and he played it really well. And he's like, this is not normal this is this is something like they're doing it for pleasure they're not hunting us for food and i think that this is michael douglas's best scene in the movie right yeah this is most subtle performance yeah he really sells that like scared quality in his face right because it's dark in there and even i wasn't quite sure of what's going on and then when you start like realize exactly where they're at and just the sheer amount of bones and things in there and i was like this is incredible. I was like, this really is a top-notch animal horror movie because you have to have a scene like that. Like I mean, I've already been talking about how they they try to to like vilify the animals as much as possible, but this is like the cherry on top of the villainous cake. You know, <laughs> it's like not only have they killed you know gobbledygillion people from this worksite, but who knows where else they're getting all these bodies from? Because it's a lot of bones in there. They did also did a little bit of subtle visual storytelling that I hadn't remembered, and they kind of show with the, with their um, torches or whatever they have in there, their lanterns, that there's cave paintings, right, and that the lions have taken over this cave that it used to be, a, you know, an actual you know safe place for men, and you see the, the the cave paintings of people hunting animals and stuff on the walls, and it's the lions that live there now, and I thought that was some cool visual storytelling that they don't even mention. Oh my god, I totally missed that. I didn't see any of that. And that is amazing. That adds a whole other level to this, right? (laughs) Oh my god, that's great. I love that. That they have just taken over man. And I mean, and that's just, I mean, it's part of this movie anyway. Like, there's, there's so much going on within the story of this movie. Like, the one thing that really struck me while I was watching it is that this movie has every single kind of, like, narrative conflict in it. And you rarely ever see that, especially in, like, horror movies or horror-adjacent movies, right? Mm. So we have, like, the basics, like, man versus man, man versus nature, man versus himself, man versus society, right? They're all packed into this one movie. And so for a very simple story, it's incredibly effective. And it has everything you could possibly need narratively. And it doesn't feel overstuffed. No, it doesn't. And it like it's very effective in the, the way that it does it. Right. But I, we, we can't talk about this movie and not talk about the number one horror scene in it. <laughs> so, yeah. So they've already <laughs> killed one lion, you know, and they're all like this is they celebrate around the campfire. And so all of a sudden you're in daytime and the work is resumed and you see that Patterson's wife and newborn son have arrived on the train. 
And then he's trying to get towards them through the throngs of, of workers. And then you see a lion in the brush kind of moving around. And Val Kilmer finally notices him. And then, like, shocking kind of way, the lion just leaps out from the brush and lands on top of, like, just fucking slams into his <laughs> yes! wife and baby. <laughs> and you can see, like, blood just, like, flying and stuff. And, like, my God. So I shrieked out loud. <laughs> and, I mean, I shrieked out loud, like, Two or three times in this movie, right? Yeah. Once was when uh, he was sitting on that trap that he had built, like the 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 big one that was standing on those pyramid beams or whatever. And that owl comes out and like scares him, like that scared the shit out of me. And yeah. then the owl makes another appearance, and I was like, "This fucking owl!" And then like this scene where that lion just jumps up there and just like mauls his wife and child. I was like, "My God," you know. And I knew deep down it had to have been a dream. I was like, "This movie is not going to take this turn, really." Yeah. But that's a shocking fucking moment in this movie, and I, yeah, they like make it a point to like the baby's dressed in white, the woman is dressed in white, and the first thing I think is, is like, "Why are you wearing that white ass dress to the like to out there?" I was like, "It's." Just gonna get dirty yeah you can't buy something in brown and then she, she's mauled to death <laughs> just like my god oh man it was it was hard to watch and actually yes. you know they're not shy about kind of showing they actually show the lions peeling skin off of people yes. in this movie and it's like ooh, they don't show the full gore of the bodies and things like that and i think that was a good choice because they Agreed. i feel like what they show is enough you know, and they show like if the lion had dragged out a body or a, a victim into the brush, that there's a huge just blood trail, you know, and, and like there's a whole, you know, mess of, of grass that's just blood red now because of the, you know, the carnage. And they show all that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, especially like when, when Michael Douglas's character has died, right? Oh, yeah. And, I mean, like they they follow the blood trail out to the tall grass, right? And then, I mean, the grass is red, like in a huge area. I mean, it's like you don't you don't have to have all the the, the gore, you don't have to have all of it. It's very subtle in its horror, and I think that that is is perfect for the marketing of this movie too, because they have to like do a fine line of how they're going to do this movie. If it's going to be super gory, yeah. it's going to have to be a horror movie, but they have it just enough to where they could have it be like a some period historical adventure. Right. Mm -hmm. But then he wakes up from that nightmare only to discover that Remington has actually been killed in their, you know, drunken sleep. Where do they get all that champagne in the middle? I don't know. They were like drinking straight out of the bottle, like popping bottles. And was it cold? <laughs> Probably not. I mean, yeah. So if I ever travel to Africa, I'm going to have to make sure I chill my champagne first because obviously there was no ice in that camp. <laughs> i love that that's your takeaway this is, this is my takeaway from the ghost in the darkness i was like that champagne is probably warm and i'll have none of that michael douglas so now that we've talked about our scenes let's talk about the overall and we kind of have talked about the look and feel and music uh but i feel like this film is actually really surprisingly effective with its cinematography and its music and its overall tone i feel like it does a really really good job of kind of trying to strike this um you know, African adventure out of Africa, Lawrence of Arabia thing, but then really getting sucked into this horror movie and really kind of doubling down on that with the tone. And I feel like it's it's done masterfully by Jerry Goldsmith's score. And I feel like it's it's done overall really, really well uh, pacing wise from the direction. Yeah, I completely agree with all of that. I think I mean, I had some problems with the score mostly because I, you know, 
we're doing this as a horror podcast, right? And so when I watch a movie for the podcast, I sort of expected there to be some horror elements, right? And, you know, for the first half of the movie, the, the music was very jaunty. And I was just like, okay, so how horror adjacent is it going to be? But as the movie progressed and the score got even more like horror-esque, I was completely surprised by it. And it really affects the tone of the movie. The movie takes a hard, sharp turn from some adventure film into like animal horror, nature horror. And it's super effective because of those things. And I think in large part, I have to give this, you know, respect to, to William Goldman for this. I think that we already know that he creates good screenplays and novels, but I think that he really did a good job with the story of this. He took a, a large story and really compressed it into what we needed to see to experience the kind of movie that we want. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes. So, I mean, like the people who want to see an African adventure are going to take away that particular aspect of it the the people who want to see a horror movie are going to remember all the horror elements and the people who want to see like a period piece about colonialism and building a bridge between cultures are going to take that away from it and i think that's incredibly amazing that he could put all of this thing into one screenplay and i'm kind of surprised that people didn't like grasp onto it well i think this is part of the 90s horror ghetto you know and you know like Jaws didn't try and pass it itself off as like an ocean adventure, <laughs> you know. It doubled down on on the fact that it's a horror movie, really. Right. You know, even though people sometimes don't think of it as one, they just think of it as Jaws, you know. But um, I feel like when you try and trick people into thinking that you're like a uh, you know a historical period adventure film, you know, <laughs> you know they're gonna come and see a horror, and they may not be prepared for that, you know, and, and they. And they're looking for a drama and they just walked out of the English patient. They watch this thing and it's not going to be what they expected or wanted, you know? And so you set it up for that. Roger Ebert did not, obviously did not walk into this film thinking it was supposed to be a historical, you know, or like a horror movie. He expected something a lot more highfalutin, you know? Well, and this is why I did not see this movie. So it dawned on me while I was watching it. I was like, why, why in the, you know, 20 years Plus, have I not watched this movie? And I think it's because when I when it was marketed to me as a moviegoer, I thought it was a historical period action adventure movie. And that really wasn't on the top of my list of things to see. Yeah. Right. And the 90s were rife with like British period pieces. And a lot of them were very, very good. You know, but after a while, there has to be some sort of fatigue for that. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think this movie was marketed as e- even that. You know, I think that it really boils down to like they didn't know which direction to take this movie. Right. And it affected me. I didn't see it, you know. And so, I mean, like. And in all fairness, you know, it does kind of defy genre expectations, you know, kind of like Witches of Eastwick a little bit. Yes. Uh, now, Witches of Eastwick kind of does it to a fault in a way versus this one. It's kind of inescapable because it's historic, right? Mm -hmm. Now, instead of my normal like fun facts section, I would like to, I mean, I do have a couple of fun facts as part of this, but I'd like to talk a lot about like this historical accuracy. That's good because I know nothing about this actual story. Okay. (laughs) So. (laughs) So first of all, I have to say that this film is shockingly historically accurate. Okay. Which is just that's so I came across like the Man Eaters of Savo, which is like the book, and then like uh, historians like uh, takes on that and like all the wikis on it, and that's what made me want to watch this movie again and cover it because I was just blown away, right? 
So this movie is set in 1898, at the height of Europe's scramble for Africa. And this is like the true story of how, you know, of Great Britain's attempts to build a bridge across the River Savo uh, was brought to a standstill by those man-eating lions. And for almost a year, they stocked the, the campsites and were reportedly responsible for the deaths of 135 victims. Right. And so all of that we kind of know from the movie. I mean, let me just stop for one second because I, the, another criticism I have about this movie is I, I didn't understand like the passage of time. Right. Yeah. He says, like, do it in three months. And then it was like four months later. And he's like, oh, I can bring it back on schedule. And it's like, what? You're supposed to do it. In, like, yeah, they didn't. They weren't quite clear. With and then, the time. yeah. And then all of a sudden, like, all these people are dead. And I was just like, mm, OK, I was like, I could have used a little help with, like, the passage of time in the movie. But that's a, a very small critique that that particular fact brought up so yeah it brought continue. me out of it a little bit too so you're not alone but okay good so colonel john patterson a british army engineer tasked with building the bridge spent 10 months trying to hunt down these unstoppable monsters the terrified locals didn't actually think they were lions at all but demons that they called the ghost and the darkness so anyway by, by building this railway british influence would have been uh, felt through the entire continent right so all of you know, basically all the way from Lake Victoria to the port of Mombasa, thereby ensuring mm-hmm. a trade link to India. So as eye rolling as it was to hear from Sir Beaumont or whatever, uh, <laughs> that they were trying to save Africa from the Africans, when he mentions that it was also to end slavery, that's not entirely wrong. So Savo was routinely crossed by Arab slaver caravans all the way uh, to the slave markets in Mombasa. So in fact, it's probably because of these caravans that the lines became such a problem to begin with. So so when the arduous journey would result in like sick slaves, the the slavers would simply throw them off the road into the African bush, right? So making oh them, my god, yeah, <laughs> making them really easy prey for you know wildlife like lions, who then developed a taste for human flesh and blood. So these caravans were literally following this route for centuries, right? So these lions could have been a problem in this area for a long time. Well, yeah, I mean, so the, they get like conditioned into liking a certain kind of taste. Generations, then, possibly. Yeah. Right? So when this route started to end the caravans, the slavers left, but the lions obviously didn't. And mm. so the bridge they were building was right in the middle of the Savo lions hunting grounds. Another part of the problem was that a lot of the African natives refused to work on the railroad. And so Britain imported thousands of Indian workers to do the job instead. And that's something that the movie actually conveys really well. It would have been easy just to make them all African, right? Right. So the Indian workers had no idea, of course, how to work and live in the African bush or protect themselves from the wildlife there. They were quite literally just there to do their job and not in their worst nightmares. So they ever considered that they were being watched. That's crazy. Yeah. So they did build those thorn bush fences around the camps, which had been proven to work to keep lions and other wildlife out in other parts of Africa. But for whatever reason, these lions tended to come and go as they pleased. So seemingly almost like magically appear and disappear as if the fences weren't there at all. And this is the moment when the locals actually stopped seeing them as lions, but as supernatural predators or even demons because they couldn't keep them out like they could in other parts of Africa. So I mean, I, I don't know how much you know about this or not, but like, uh, I assume that these superstitions about these lions were like prevalent in their culture already or no, well, people didn't live out here. 
right? I mean, they, Ever. Uh, okay, so they did, but they were like, the problem with this railroad, right, is that it's moving constantly, and there's people spread over about 30 miles working on this thing. Okay, yeah. At any given time, and all these isolated little campsites all the way dotted all the way along the way. So a lot of the time when they they hear of like this this lion attack, by the time they're all, they're you know they get there and you know another of the lions or they've circled back and have done another you know and so it was very hard and so these are thousands of workers and they didn't have guns you know only a couple of the people had guns right you know so in fact the scene where patterson builds his elaborate boxcar trap is also completely true so after the trap was sprung the lion flew into a rage and started smashing into the bars and walls so the lion was so aggressive that the hunters couldn't even manage to hit him obviously just like the movie so one of the indians in the trap actually lost his hearing to the lion's roar and they show that in the movie him holding his ears when the lion roars but he actually right. in reality actually lost his hearing when that happened oh my god that's crazy yeah so obviously one of the bullets eventually hit the lock on the door and the lion managed to escape so all of that's true holy shit exactly how it happened in the film so it's gotta be fucking terrifying yes. so uh when patterson noticed the lion tracks outside of the hospital he did actually construct a new one and set up the old as a trap and spill that blood and the bits of animal flesh around but just like in the movie the lion circled back to the new hospital and attacked it instead so that's completely true as well how horrifying is that <laughs> <laughs> That's also incredibly horrifying. But so when you say patent, where does Remington fit into all this? I'll, I'll get to that in a second, right? Okay. So yeah, the inaccuracies of the film are more about the characters rather than what actually happened. So for example, Michael Douglas's character, Remington, is totally made up. Why? Why would they put his character in that movie? <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, like to build to do that function, that Western function, right? To to give, you know, American audiences someone to put themselves into, I guess, if Patterson wasn't already doing that. So in reality, Patterson, while his hunting and experience had to hunt these lions virtually alone. That's a much better story. I'm sorry, like all due respect to that character, which I did like, you know, a little bit. I think I would have rather seen Val Kilmer's character, like, just become a better hunter and become more like, like Ahab. You know what I mean? Like, I've got to kill these creatures for whatever reason. Well, yeah. And in that cave scene, like, they literally could have given that scene to Samuel, you know, the Kenyan foreman. Yes. And, and, you know, had him say that lions aren't like this, you know? But yeah, the only inaccuracy I could find about the lions is that the male lions in Savo are actually maneless. So Savo lions have increased testosterone accounting for their lack of manes, as well as an increased size and aggressiveness compared to the other African lions. So when Patterson finally shot and killed the real lions, they were measured to be about nine feet in length. So um, when he talks about the lions being on display in a museum, is that Yeah, it's completely true. Oh, we have to make a pilgrimage. Yeah. So many historians (laughs) and academics have been skeptical about the memoirs of Patterson and the eyewitness accounts, believing them to be exaggerated and embellished. Nevertheless, scientists recently took hair samples of the lions who are on display at the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago, just like the film says, and analyzed their chemical composition to determine how many people they actually ate in the last three months of their lives. The research concluded that one lion ate at least 11 people and the other ate at least 24. Oh my God. This doesn't include the victims they killed and didn't digest, (laughs) right? So... Again, that was just to confirm the number they ate during the last three months of their lives rather than the whole ordeal, which was nine or ten months. 
fucking terrifying. <laughs> That's insane. Is what that is. I mean, like, seriously, we spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about things that are supernatural or things that probably could never happen in real life, ghosts and monsters and things like this. Mm-hmm. But real, real fucking monsters. I mean, that is horrifying. <laughs> My God. So some unbelievable events weren't even depicted in the movie. So during the Maneater scourge at Savo, one young engineer was killed when a lion leapt through a screen window and into the railway carriage in which he had been sleeping. The lion dragged the body away and was found the next morning. So this specially built railway carriage, which had many of the luxuries now common in recreational vehicles, can be seen in the railway museum in Nairobi. Visitors can board the carriage and sit on the refitted bed where the engineer was attacked and killed. (laughs) Until the early 80s, it was maintained in the dark green livery of the Maneater period, and it had a plaque beneath the window through which the, the lion had entered. Oh my god. As a side note, this is the exact railway car repainted in the turn of the century beige livery that was used by Meryl Streep in the opening railway scenes from the film out of Africa in 1985. <laughs> that wasn't in the film. It's like a line literally leaped into a train window through a screen, ripped a guy out and killed him. <laughs> that is fucking insane. I love it. So like, it just comes back to like Roger Ebert, you know, saying like, Oh, Tarzan's more believable. It's like, man, if you did your homework, <laughs> Not only is it did it actually happen, but more shit that's unbelievable actually happened. So, I mean, like, do you think they should have played that up in the marketing too? Then, just like really hype up this is a true story. I don't know. I mean, maybe I need to look up some posters or something. They say it in the opening narrative. You know, there's a narrator at the beginning and the end that's talking about how this actually happened. He even says you can go view them in in the museum in Chicago. You know, and he says all that, but it's like it's 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 not. You'd expect almost like a title card at the end to say this all actually happened and blah, 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 blah. Or you'd, you'd expect to see based on a true story somewhere or something. I mean, I would think you'd put it like right in the center of the fucking poster because we get movies often that are like loosely based on real events that will claim the entire thing is based on real events. Right. And here we have a movie that really, aside from one character, is a, a true story, right? A true horrifying story. And they really don't play at that fact at all, right? Yeah. And for whatever reason, they chose not to, you know? And I feel like that, in hindsight, at least, that's a mistake. Agreed. You know, maybe people, I don't know, maybe if they did it, maybe they test audienced, you know, it, and people were just like, uh, no, how could this be possibly true? So they just like took some of that stuff out and just left it for the narration. I don't know. Oh, screw you guys, man, because that's crazy. I love that that's an amazing story so have you read this book no but at at the end of the day is it believable that two lions worked together to hunt and kill humans for pleasure nothing like that situation has ever been recorded before or since but it all seems to be historically accurate i mean i i'm sure that animals just like human beings get pissed off about shit right and if you have already grown accustomed to the taste of human flesh and you got all these people around you encroaching on your land of course, you're going to do some of it for fun. Yeah. I mean, come on. So I do have, I do can end with one fun fact. Okay. There is only one scene involving an animatronic lion. All the other shots were used actually with two real life lions, one named Caesar and the other named Mr. Bongo. <laughs> <laughs> 
Mr. Bongo? Bongo. <laughs> what the hell was that dog from Cabin Fever? Cabin Fever? <laughs> yeah. It was like Mondo or Bongo, something like that, right? Yeah, doc- Dr. Mondo. Hey, Dr. Mondo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the Mr. Bongo. Yeah, but uh, the same lines also appeared in the film George of the Jungle from 1997. Which I also haven't Mr. seen. Mr. Bongo. <laughs> Mr. Bongo. Yeah. So that's the reason why I really like requested us to like up this film in our schedule. Um, because I just had learned how historically accurate it was and just shocked the fuck out of me. Like I could, I mean, I sort of like, I didn't really know it was based on a true story until you had mentioned it. And it it, makes it that much more visceral and terrifying watching it to me. It really does. I mean, it really puts it up there in like horror pantheon. And I love that. I mean, for a piece of history that I think most people just don't, I obviously don't know. I think many people haven't seen this movie and they don't know this piece of history. So that's shocking and incredible. So, but like every movie that we cover here on the Film Flamers, we are going to ask a series of questions. And uh, the first one will be, like always, is The Ghost in the Darkness a horror movie? You know, I want to say that it's actually a lot closer to a horror movie than a lot of the horror adjacent movies that we cover. I would agree. So, yeah. I mean, so this month alone, we've talked about The Witches of Eastwick, which we have said is like genre bending, just like this particular movie is too. But I think this one really like crosses the horror line a lot easier and more often than The Witches of Eastwick does. Yeah. Right. I'm kind of glad that we did both these two movies at the same time because it's a really good conversation to have about like horror adjacency. And genre, yeah. And yeah. And so like, you know, we talk about horror adjacency and we and genre bending movies, but like which genre are you going to lean more into? Like obviously that one leaned into comedy and some fantasy and this one leans into some action and adventure. But I would say for the greater part of this movie, we are subjected to watching lions kill people, which we learn for fun. Mm-hmm. Right. And we get to see some really shocking moments. And I think that it's like a, like a humbling realization that like horror is all around you, you know, depending on where you live. Right. And to what can possibly be there and like wildlife itself can be horrifying. But that's interesting point, right? Because I feel like when it comes to historical or period pieces where they're trying to be historically accurate, you know, from anything like the imitation game to like a Schindler's list or something like that. And it can be, different uh depending on you know what the story is from history right so the genre is almost incidental this happened to be a very horrific story from real life you know and so it makes for kind of a wolf in sheep's clothing right um you know it's it's sold as like this uh historical adventure film but it's really at its heart a horror movie and i would say that like you know, depending on the different kinds of marketing, right? I mean, like the the poster for this movie looks like a horror movie poster to me, right? So we have like mm-hmm. Michael Douglas, like obviously aiming a gun and Val Kilmer behind him. And it's just like, it's sort of like shadowed in the background and like, it's all red. You know? And so, I mean, like, it looks like a horror movie poster. And so yeah. I, mean, I think clearly that they they knew that there were a lot of horror elements in this that people would latch onto, especially horror fans. And let's not forget that William Goldman is no slouch when it comes to horror movies. I mean, he's done many Stephen King adaptations, including Misery. 
and like uh Dreamcatcher. I think he also wrote the screenplay for the Stepford Wives. I mean, like he has immersed himself into that particular genre. It's also produced by Gail Ann Hurd, which we haven't mentioned yet. And she, of course, produced things like The Terminator and Aliens <laughs> Tremors. But the director has I mean he did a Nightmare on Elm Street movie. I forget which one. I mean it's after three, so but I mean, like, there's horror cred all over this. Yeah, he did The Dream Child. Five. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think he also did The Predator, right? Or one of them. Uh, he did Predator 2. I mean, horror. So there's, there's horror all over the making of this movie. So secondly, were you scared while watching The Ghost in the Darkness? Yes, actually. I think I was. I think I was scared. What? <laughs> Nothing that was just- very animated <laughs> which I, well i'm excited because i almost never i'm almost never scared by the movies we watch maybe because I i've know. seen them too many times or you know what but you know i've I, it's been so long since i've seen this and then of course i hyped myself up by reading all the history so i think i was in you know there's some scenes you know in this um in this film that are terrifying. And I agree. I mean, like I was sort of like expecting more like a period movie and less than a horror, you know, I mean, I knew there were going to be some horror in it. Otherwise, you know, we wouldn't have chosen it for this podcast, but I wasn't expecting like the level of violence that these lions were causing. And like the, I mean, and and there was plenty of gore in this movie, right. Mm -hmm. But very subtly, you know, just enough to make each kill shocking, Every single time. In its own way, yeah. Yeah, and so I, I think that there's... And there's good jump scares in this movie, like that fucking owl. I swear <laughs> to God. I was just sitting there, and I was watching this in the middle of the day, and that owl, like, screeched up on him, and I was like, ah! Like, screeched <laughs> Yeah, I hair, jumped with the so. stupid owl. <laughs> and then he falls <laughs> off. Like, I expected him to, like, be, uh, like, one of the lions to, like, crash into the into the sticks or something but no he it's the stupid owl that starts like it's flying by his head and, and yeah. he falls off the thing i mean because all those those three guys are in that box car and they're like behind that gate and the lion's crashing into it and we can see the nails popping out but no it's the owl that makes him fall <laughs> that trap but it's effective and it's effective jump scare mm-hmm. so as long as they work put them in movies as far as i'm concerned yeah. all right so out of five stars what would you rate the ghost in the darkness you know i'm just because of like the surprising, like if I had just watched this movie again without actual knowing the history and stuff, I'd probably give it a three, three and a half. But knowing how historically accurate it is, I I kind of want to give it a four. Plus, I I you know rediscovered Jerry Goldsmith's score, and I love Jerry Goldsmith, and I just can't believe I had never really listened to the score, and I I did listen to it in isolation after I watched the movie, and I was just like, wow, you know. So um, I want to give it a four just for shiggles. <laughs> I'm going to go three and a half just because I, I mean, I, I liked the movie. I thought that it was fun. Like I enjoyed myself watching it and I always take into account rewatchability and I would totally see myself watching this again, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I love that when, you know, there's a movie from back in like what I would consider like my heyday, right? My teenage years that I missed along the way. And I'm like, there has to have been a reason why I didn't watch this movie. And then you watch it and you're like, no, teenage self, I was completely wrong. You should have went and seen this in the theater. <laughs> you would have enjoyed it. Like, stop being such a fucking snob about shit and just watch movies, you know? And it's good. It's it's enjoyable. I think that if you have not seen this movie, coming from someone watching it for the very first time, Go watch it. It's good. Three and a half for sure. I'm just now looking at the poster and it says the the tagline is pray for the hunters. <laughs> See? Horror all over the place. <laughs> pray like P-R-A-Y or P-R-E-Y? <laughs> it's P-R-E-Y. <laughs> 
So I'm actually looking up the full size because there's another tagline on there that I can't read. <laughs> Only the most incredible parts of the story are true. That's the second tagline. <laughs> not not the boring parts? Yeah. <laughs> Only the most incredible parts of the story are true. <laughs> well, it must have been so small that no one saw that. So finally, and some would say most important, who's the hottest guy in the Ghost in the Darkness? I'm just going to be boring and say Val Kilmer. It's obviously Val Kilmer. I'm sorry. That man is like, he was, he's very attractive. He's an attractive movie star looking guy. Yeah. You know? And I, he looks handsome and lovable. So I'm going to go with that. Although that, that one uh, guy who killed the lion with his bare hands, right? Um, (laughs) Was surprisingly ripped. And I was just like, I did not expect that level of body. And I was just like, thank God he had his shirt off because that really made the movie worth watching too. And delicious for the lion. <laughs> I can't make jokes yeah. like that because I have to keep reminding myself this shit actually happened. Yeah. <laughs> that ripped man actually died, Chris. Fuck. <laughs> well, I think that just about wraps up our conversation on the ghost in the darkness. I finally learned to say it right all through the recording of this podcast, at least when Chris edits it. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, let us know what you think of this movie. If you've seen it, what you think about our conversation about it, you can do that on social media at the film flamers on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and you can find us on Letterboxd. And you can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or call us on our hotline at 972-666-7733. Leave us a voicemail. We'll play it on the next Shooting the Flames episode and respond to it. We also like to call out our new patrons and reviews on Shooting the Flames. So if you're listening to this podcast on Apple or iTunes, go over and give us a five-star review, a little snippet about why you like us. We'll read that on the episode. And head over to patreon.com slash thefilmflamers to find all of our bonus content and episodes like this one out sometimes weeks early for as little as two bucks. Yeah. So this month we'll actually be going over Doctor Strange. That's right. That's the flashback. Over on Patreon. Mm -hmm. Your flashback choice this month, right? I haven't seen it, so I'm looking forward to it. I think most of our listeners know that I am not the biggest, like, Marvel or comic book fan, but you've, like, hyped this movie up so much that I I kind of know I'm going to like it, though. I mean, like, on paper, it's the one that I was going to like anyway. Well, especially with your newfound love of Tilda Swinton that I finally won you over. And I do love Tilda now. I know. I'm so excited. So, you know, actually, when we're done, we're recording this i'm going to watch that so that's that's coming up but we also have a lot of stuff coming out next month for you guys in addition to our shooting the flames we are going to be covering uh a gay horror comedy called psycho beach party psycho beach party so Mm -hmm. june is pride month and we like to like find some of those gay twinged horror films to watch and digest and we're looking forward to digesting that one Mm mm-hmm Oh god, the, the tones of that word are terrible. I don't what? know why I said that. Digest. Maybe because we're talking about fucking lions eating people. I don't know. It's like pervaded my mind. Well guys, as always, we appreciate the lessons of support, but it's time for Chris and I to go off into the dark jungle. So until our next episode. <laughs> <laughs> The flavors <laughs> sleep tonight. <laughs> <sighs>
Sweet dreams. You know, watching this movie, I had the song Africa by Toto stuck in my head for a lot of it, you know? And so I was just like, I bless the rains down in Africa. Until they started building the bridge, and then I had Love Can Build a Bridge by the Judd stuck in my head. It was a whole, like, gamut of emotions sonically that was not being played in the movie so this is where my brain just does well yeah it's gonna take a lot to drag me away from you <laughs> bye